You're watching Global Trade This Week with Pete Mento and Doug Draper. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Global Trade This Week. I was caught up in some mountain chaos uh, last week, and Keenan and, and Pete did an amazing job, and, and now we're back together. And Pete is actually in what I would call the players' clubs, kind of like a lounge outside of uh, of San Diego. So I'm not sure what's going on with those with those curtains behind you, my friend. But uh, that is where you are, though, San Diego, correct? Yeah, I'm in San Diego. I'm actually doing this from my hotel room in San Diego um, at this beautiful hotel at the marina. Um, it is uh, it's sad that I have to be on my phone to do it today because the internet here is crap which is a good indication of the rest of the property. Um, <laughs> I don't think anybody here would ever give this more than a two-star review, but when you're asleep, every hotel looks the same, pal. Everyone yeah. looks the same. Yeah. So. Well, not, not every hotel's curtains look the same. So, you know, that's a, that's an A plus right there. You know, I can ask them where they got these, Doug, if you want to put them in the new crib. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You, maybe want so. you want me to go ask? Uh, yeah, no, I think I'm good. I think I don't. Okay, I buddy. don't think my wife would approve, but I appreciate you asking. All right, so, cool, cool. Yeah. Well, let's let's get this thing ripping, man. What do you got? You're you're up first today. Yeah. Uh, so we had talked a lot about this earlier on in the year about how the Red Sea situation could could possibly cause issues with marine insurance, and boy, howdy, has it ever. So, G Captain, G C A P T A I N. I, I can't recommend it enough as a follow on Twitter or just as one of those daily news sweeps you do, put out an article on Friday or Saturday, I care which day it was exactly, that was getting into an interesting phenomena regarding uh, war risk insurance. So war risk insurance right now to transit the Red Sea has gone up um, an unbelievable amount. So depending on what part of the article and who's professional you want to believe in, it could be anywhere from 700% to 1,000%. Mm. Put that in, you know, Pete and Doug terms, it's uh, it's costing about a million dollars now when it used to cost anywhere from $70,000 to $100,000 to insure a vessel. That is a lot of money. That is a lot of money. And uh, although it's really probably not going to have as big an impact on the ocean container industry, it will likely have a pretty significant impact on the tanker industry, where there's still a lot of tanker traffic going through. Again, um, just about any any Muachi captain or looking at Salmar Garcia, the, the guys on Twitter, they'll show the vessels that are transiting every day. And right now it's mostly tanker traffic. That increase in cost, of course, is going to be passed on to the people moving the cargo, which will eventually get passed on to us. So, yeah, man, this is a, this is a significant increase. You're talking about real money. And as a tax increase, as vessels continue to get hit, it's only going to go up farther, buddy. Yeah. Well, you you said it. It's war risk insurance, and there is a war going on in that region, right? Yeah. It's it's crazy. I don't think uh, the general public would understand the um, amount of money that you're speaking of, or or, uh, or or how that relates. So that that's crazy. There, there's all, and my first topic I'll jump into a second is is also related to that. And I think it's just the trip trick trickle effect, unintended consequences that are starting to materialize and everything. But that. That's insane. The question, Pete, is: Is it going to go down as fast as it went up when things get resolved, or, or what do you think on that? I imagine it will. Uh, I think that'd be a realistic, you know, as as the threat goes down, 
you would imagine it would as well. I don't know for sure. I have a friend, Paul Smart, who's kind of my go-to guy for insurance questions. I could certainly ask him that for the next show. But the, um, you know, the, the scary thing about this is just how quick it can have an impact on things like inflation, certainly on transportation inflation and the cost that's associated with that. And marine mm-hmm. insurance and insurance and risk is something that people don't pay nearly enough attention to in this industry. And I, I don't think that it's because of a non-interest. I think just because it's always been so mystical, you know, people, it's a small group of people that manage it and they do a lot of very difficult mathematics to understand their risks. So for, for people like you and I, we just end up getting the result of all that analysis in a number. So yes, I, I do see it probably going forward. Uh, you know, if you look at the pictures last week of one of these ships that came in that had been struck by a missile, it hit the house. I mean, it hit where the people do their work every day above deck, where they live. And it didn't, it didn't breach the, um, the, the bulkhead. It didn't breach the wall, but it left a hell of a mark, pal. And, you know, what everyone's worried and concerned with is eventually it could actually impact the life and safety of the, not just the vessel, but the mariners as well. So yeah. I say this all the time, you know, as a sailor, your first responsibility is to your crew. The second is to any of the crew at sea. The third is to your vessel. The fourth is to any other vessel at sea, and the fifth is to the cargo. This is really a larger reflection on the safety of the men and women that are currently underway and at sea and keeping them safe, uh, and hopefully making people consider secondly about how they're going to move that cargo before they do it. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's a good uh, dovetail into uh, in, into my topic, which is also related to, to the Red Sea, and it's related to equipment and vessel access, um, more specifically to the equipment piece that I was was speaking to. So, shocker, you have a longer transit time, right? People are going down around Africa, uh, and you have all these container, or excuse me, vessels redirecting. So, if you have a asset, an ocean container that has a longer transit, it's going to be inaccessible for a longer period of time. But the flow of goods doesn't change. You're expecting that container to be in this port because they normally go through the Suez Canal on a specific date. And oh, by the way, it's going to be an extra 10 to 14 days later. What are you going to do? You got to do something. You need more equipment. So I think that there is starting to get some attention on an equipment shortage. Um, obviously, there's vessels that that need to uh, need to help the flow of goods as well. But I think the um, as far as uh, container traffic, it, it's going to be a big deal because they're going to be repositioned in the wrong places. There's going to be vessels that need to call on different ports simply because of issues that come up where they're like, we're running out of fuel. We got to get this stuff off of the uh, the vessel. There's a heightened sense of of security that needs to be maintained. And so um, I think equipment's going to be, be a big deal. Possibly going back to vessels, maybe some blank sailings where you got a vessel that just has to get back on track figuratively and literally to where its port needs to go to pick up the cargo that's waiting. And so I think there's this trickle effect and albeit it's over in, uh, in Europe and Asia. So it doesn't affect North America, at least the United States quite, quite yet, but it's starting to, and it will because those vessels all come around and, and just like an airline, you know, it doesn't go from Denver to San Diego and San Diego to Denver and Denver to San Diego. I mean, it's zipping all over the country, depending on what the routing is. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this, Pete, is that um, there was a situation, I don't know, a couple, maybe it was last year, where DIA, Denver International Airport, was snowed in. And so they redirected a plane down to Colorado Springs, which is about an hour south of Denver. And everybody was like, yeah, cool, just send the, 
when that's over to send the the uh, you know the airplane back up, well, here's the shocker: is Colorado Springs is smaller. They don't have the infrastructure to handle it. How do you get the plane out of there to reposition it? How do you get the people off the plane and get them back up to DIA to make their connections? And so simply saying, oh, move the move the airplane to this uh, this airport, which is closer. The unintended consequences of what that materializes is what we're starting to see with repositioning of equipment. And, oh, my God, we need more ocean containers. Where are they? How do we buy them? How do we procure them? So I think it's going to become a bigger topic as things continue to progress. I agree, man. I, I had a uh, a guy I worked for, a bit of a mentor, when I first started working at Panopina uh, many, many decades ago. His name was Marty Gillespie, really just a wonderful man. And he he said, you need to start thinking of the supply chain as a whole environment. You can't you can't think of it as little pieces, you know, where everything that affects something at point A is going to affect it eventually at point Z. Mm-hmm. And when you begin to, you know, contract what's happening in one part of it, it just snowballs. So it gets worse. It would be like if you had a limp. Well, that limp's going to affect the rest of your leg and the rest of your gait. Before you know it, a different part of your leg hurts. You know, whenever we have to do things a little bit differently, it impacts the entire environment. So with these vessels taking longer routes, it means less availability on the other side. And um, you have fewer vessels as well because of the crunch right now on manufacturing. So it, it will eventually have an issue. What I worry about is capacity. At, at what point will it become so difficult that getting that container means you're missing a vessel not getting it on a vessel. And Mm -hmm. and then at that point, maybe you're going to see some changes to the cost. I have not done enough research or spoken to the right people to really get enough information. Here at DSV, we have a gentleman named Ben uh, Kaufman really, really dialed in. Uh, I know that they've been watching it very closely, but this is on everyone's top of mind right now. I think it's going to stay that way, buddy, until it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if your leg has a limp and you're walking away, I I tell you what, you, you can't be a Kaiser Soze, right? No, Kaiser Soze, buddy. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how many people are going to get that joke but me and you and maybe five other people, but that's cool. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes they're just for us, Doug. Sometimes they're just for us. That yeah. is. It's exactly right. And what, what another fun time is just for us, Pete, is halftime because we get to talk about whatever we want. Uh, it's brought to us by Cap Logistics. They're the, the platform and the folks that uh, bring this show to us every week. So I want to thank caplogistics.com to check them out. So anyway, um, he, you went first, so let me let let's see your uh, your halftime. And my halftime is very personal this week, man. I'm telling you, I, I I have been flying a lot since I took this new job, and you know, with that comes being on airplanes, and being on airplanes means the reward system. So when I was with CH Robinson, and probably before that, I did most of my flying on two airlines, and that was American Airlines and Delta. Uh, I have flown over 6 million miles with Delta Airlines in my career, which is preposterous. But I was going overseas so much. A lot of that's probably reward miles, you know, but still a ridiculous amount. And I can remember being a diamond with them. I remember being the concierge key with American Airlines, and they treated me so incredibly well. Well, now, years later, what the airlines have realized is a lot of people fly, and there are games that we play with our miles. So they're just making it really, really hard, really, really hard to gain status and to get the perks that come with it. I flew a red eye back from Seattle last week. I flew from Seattle to uh, San Francisco and then from San Francisco home. And I was in the middle seat for both flights on United. 
I've been flying United consistently. I mean, at one point I had the 1K. Um, but right now, after all the flying I did last year, so I was, I was in this job for six months. I was unable to obtain the next level up. They sent me an email yesterday saying that for $2,200, they'd be happy to bring me up that to that next level, <laughs> which um, I'm not happy to pay that kind of money. So the, you know, my, my complaint here is that for frequent travelers that are traveling every week, multiple flights a week, there should be some way of keeping me there because I live and work out of Washington, D.C., and that means there's really only one carrier out of Dulles, and that's United, unless I want to go to the commuter airport closer to D.C., Reagan, which I do love that airport. But honestly, man, it's 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 killing me. It's absolutely killing me the, the way that I'm just not getting the love from these guys. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. It's just the fact that everybody's flying, right? I'm premier silver on United. And I'm like, hey, I'm kind of a big deal. And I walk up there in the upgrade list. I'm like number 17. Uh, and I'm looking around. Yeah. I'm like, there's 17 people here that have. So you're right. Yeah. It's it, doesn't, it doesn't help that you live in probably one of their biggest hubs either, man, like Newark and Colorado. And then any of the West Coast Air Airlines, like, yeah, you're, you're going to be number 510 on the upgrade list sitting in the middle yeah. seat. Yeah. Well, uh, the um, uh, TSA pre-check, I'll, I'll, I'll um, give that and thing clear. credit all day long. Love it. Clear. Love it. Clear is fantastic. Yeah. So, all right, man, here's what my app. Got, yeah, it was uh, related to a story that popped out on Friday uh, about Sports Illustrated, right? Um, there was a... Basically, the, the thing is, are they closing down, right? 70 years of history. Uh, there was a notice that came out that said almost all, if not all, of the employees at Sports Illustrated said you no longer have a job. And um, it could be the end of an era. Um, so, like, almost all the employees were terminated. And there's been, you know, great memories. Everybody has the Sports Illustrated. Uh, I'm not even talking about the swimsuit edition. I'm talking about the stories, the sports stories that, that have been out there. And two things that, that struck me. One is there's a guy named Rick Riley, if you remember him. Yep. Um, he was a CU grad, University of Colorado. He actually wrote for the Boulder Daily Camera when he was in college, and he did some work at the Denver Post. But that guy, um, he was, ah, what was he called? He was like the back page columnist of SI. Yeah, Every it was great. Back yeah. page. He was witty and funny, and he was relevant to the topics and, and phenomenal. I, I mean, that was the one guy that, uh, that that popped out at me. But there was a guy, uh, another gentleman named Mark Conrad, and he, you and I don't do a good job, at least I don't do a good job of referencing some of the stuff that we talk about here. But there was this guy named Mark Conrad, director of sports business concentration. I'm not really sure what that is. But he said it's a sad event for sports journalism because SI was the breeding ground for some of the finest long form writers, sports or otherwise, found in American journalism. The problem with that and the reason that we are where we are is the term long form writers. It just doesn't exist anymore. People don't have the yeah. attention span to sit down and open a magazine and uh, read a five page article about the uh, new emerging pitchers that are coming out of uh, Wichita State University or Florida or something, right? So it's just it's just another demise of an amazing historical run of uh, uh, of that magazine. It, it's been phenomenal. And I always think of Rick Riley when I think of that show. So uh, if anybody knows Rick Riley, tell him we'll get him on the show. We'll talk a little SI. But anyway, that's it. my take on that. That's my take. Yeah, for me growing up, you know, my pop got the local paper. When we were in Texas, it'd be the Dallas Morning Star. 
when we moved up to New Hampshire, he would get both the Union Leader and the Boston Globe. And my dad was a voracious reader of of uh, journalism. And I remember every morning I would take the sports section and I would see what was going on nationally. I'd read box scores and I'd, I'd look for the local stuff that was going on for my own team's opening that one of my friends was mentioned. God knows I never was. But when Sports Illustrated came every week, it was different. You know, it was like the elevated types of, of insight and national news stories and these awesome pictures of people that I really emulated as a young athlete, as a young guy. And then also I love the section where they would they would say, uh, you know, around the country, these uh, oh, yeah. college yeah. And, and high school students. I love that. You know, just even even though I didn't think I ever knew anybody that made that list, it was just awesome, right, to see them locally. And then ESPN, the magazine, came out in the 90s, and that was a little more to my taste as a consumer. But I still read SI, and I, I realized when I saw your topic today, I don't really remember the last time I read Rolling Stone, Sports Illustrated. I still physically get a copy of The Economist, and that's probably the only physical thing I get. Oh, that and Foreign Affairs. Those are probably the only two I ever get that are still physical. But I get all of my sports journalism from ESPN.com. Barstool, you know, and I read it all there. And you're right. The, the coverage we get is very small and they're generally pushing you towards video. So it's sad. Yeah. It's, a, it's another one of those things we're seeing go away with with just uh, long form journalism. And uh, it really sucks, man. It just sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Makes me feel ancient. Yeah. I can remember Sports Illustrated had a uh, April Fool's issue. Do you remember when they had the picture that pitched barefoot that had gone to Tibet and he threw like 120 miles an hour. Do you remember yes. all that? I bought a hook on a sinker. I was going to do, I was going to make comments on Rick Riley or that one. I didn't know enough about that, that, uh, that article, but yeah, that was the big one. I remember from uh, April fool's day. I bought it. I bought it. Hook last. Dad, have you seen this guy? He's like, you moron. It's, <laughs> it's, it's an April, April fool's joke. You idiot. Go, go do your homework. Yeah. Go mow yeah. the lawn. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Second half of the show, you start off. Yeah, so second half last week, there was a notice that came from Customs that they're changing the de minimis chapter 86 entry requirements, not the requirements, but how we do the entry. And that seems, you know, pretty out there, it's pretty far out from a trade topic. But here's why it's so important, Doug. Right now, all these de minimis entries under $800 that e-commerce is doing, they're following the same basic process as other types of entries, meaning we can do them wheels up when the aircraft leaves. Or in the case of Ocean, you can do them up to 10 days prior to arrival. And this gives customs time to play around with whatever's going on with the document. Um, for manifest entries, that isn't necessarily the case. And now they're saying you're going to do it upon arrival. And this is going to add even more congestion, in my opinion. And it's going to add an even bigger push of information and data in a, in a way that's going to give customs less and less time to understand what's happening with that entry. It's eventually going to slow it down. So we always like to talk about what's going to happen with trade. I think that this is a great indication that you're probably going to see the Chapter 86 e-commerce entries actually start to slow. It could take days to possibly process because the information is going to be available to customs much farther down the stream than rather mm -hmm. up the stream. So I think ultimately this is going to be a bit of a, of a problem. It's going to hamstring our ability um, currently to deal with, with e-commerce. I'm going to watch that pretty closely. Interesting. Well, just throw some AI over it, right? Mix up a little AI cinnamon, some sugar, salt and pepper, and some AI, and uh, maybe it'll fix that problem. The interesting thing on that one is um, 
the whole is the $800 de minimis too high, too low? Um, you know, that's always a debate up there, but uh, yeah. that wasn't the key focus uh, of what I had read about on this last go around. So no, I, I don't know. The more concerned with processing at this point and, you know, ACE, the system that it's all built off of was supposed to cost $200 million and be done in two years. We're 22 years since then. We're $2.4 billion over budget and it still struggles because it just hasn't been able to keep pace with trade. And this is making it even worse. So, yeah, I'm going to watch this real close, Doug, but I think it's going to have an impact. Yeah, it'll be. Well, you got Sheehan and Tame. Is it Tam- Tameu? Tameu? Tameu. Tameu? Yeah. 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 Well, they're, they're going to be pushing from one side of it, so we'll see how that goes. But, yeah, we will. What you got for us, buddy? Take us home. All right. So we haven't had a rail discussion in quite a while. Uh, this is the first one of the year, so I wanted to kind of throw it out there. And um, here's my... I want it to be a prediction, Pete, because I it, it needs to happen, but the rail moves so slow, not the physical movement of, I'm just talking about decisions makings and, and transitions and things of that nature. Uh, you know, the whole Canadian Pacific acquisition of KC Southern, you know, that's still kind of messing around. But my point is that uh, if the rail wants to start pulling business from trucks, because there is an insane amount of capacity right now, they need to make the network very much more seamless, right? And so there's the uh, the, the collaboration that needs to uh, uh, transpire, the interchange agreement, right? Because these railroads own the assets. They own the track. And so if you're trying to ship something from uh, the West Coast over to the East Coast, you got to transfer it to another railroad at an interchange like a Chicago or a Dallas or something like that. So those handoffs... And the ability to work with each other, um, those barriers need to come down. The speed needs to go up. Um, there's so much capacity in the market right now. Um, I've seen uh, firsthand here in Colorado that the amount of uh, coal that's being pulled out of the mountains is decreasing. And so the Union Pacific is now talking about opening their tracks up a little bit more for commuters. Or not commuters, but let's get people up into the mountains before coal was king. And, and it still is to some degree. But um, as um, uh, things change with alternative energy, alternative fuels, there'll always be a need for coal, um, things of that nature. But I think collaboration with the class ones needs to really happen in 2024. Otherwise, they're going to you know, miss, miss the, um, the opportunity to take advantage of, uh, of pulling business away from from trucks, uh, lots of truck capacity out there. But the key thing is the interchange. And each each class one is like, well, you know, we make money. This is me talking. You know, we make money through the interchange. If I'm going to move your rail car, you got to pay me for that. Well, if I'm going to move your car, you got to pay me for that. And ultimately, the consumer ends up paying it, or or the manufacturer. And so, anyway, I've said it three times on this little little uh, rant here. But there needs to be collaboration far more than there has in the past with the class ones to compete with the capacity in the truck market right now, uh, or they're going to, I'm going to say they come irrelevant because we're always going to need the rail. They're going to miss an opportunity, kind of like what I've talked about with the USPS. Had to get that one in there. Collaboration for class one. Let's make it happen. Let's see it here in 2024. Such a postal hater, Doug, honestly. <laughs> uh, we have made no, you know, no, no, um, uh, there's no allusion to the fact on the show Doug and Pete are big fans of rail. Okay. 
we're big, we're big fans of rail. We're big fans of rail for a host of reasons. But one of the reasons that it's difficult to expand it is the, the barrier to entry being cost and the amount of money that's associated with upgrades. That's something so not just strategically, economically important, but strategically important for national defense, strategically important for our ability to maintain food security. I can keep going, you know, but the, the amount of money that's dumped into it for the most part, for the most part, appears to be private. It's going to take a lot of money coming from federal sources and that collaboration that you've spoken about to take this thing to the next level where it really needs to go. We have a lot of open space in this country still, believe it or not, and it's worth us making that investment to make it better. But there's no point to it if these companies can't find a way to make decisions about standards and to find ways to make it more efficient. Um, but, man, you know, I sincerely hope for this whole industry that they do find a way to do that because it's so much better for the for the consumer of both transportation and the final product. And honestly, it's just better for national security. Yeah, agreed. We'll see. All, all right. right. Well, that takes us to the end of the show. And uh, we want to thank all the viewers, all the listeners of Global Trade this week. If you do watch the video, you can listen to it instead and vice versa. Uh, we are available on all podcast networks. I want to say thank you again to our great friends at Cap Logistics who do support us on the show, even though, again, Neither Doug or I work for the company. They have been incredibly kind to us by allowing us to continue to, uh, you know, speak our mind and talk about what we think is going to happen. A big thanks back to Keenan in the booth. Um, he did a passable job last week with me. Uh, you know, I can see some areas and opportunities for improvement, but, you know, he's a young guy. He's still coming up the ranks. Hopefully one of these days he'll be ready for full time. But uh, I want to thank him again. And thanks to you, Doug, as always, for a great show. We'll see everybody next week on Global Trade This Week. Excellent. Thanks, Pete. See you.